Our scripture lesson today comes from the Old Testament book of Exodus, the 32nd chapter, beginning with the first verse. I invite you to listen for God's word. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, formed it in a mold, and cast an image of a calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. The Lord said to Moses, Go down at once. Your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone, so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them, and of you I will make a great nation." But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil attempt that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath, change your mind, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people. And we give thanks to God for the reading from his word. They say that centuries ago, a group of hardy emigres uh, departed their home country in a rickety wooden ship set out across a stormy ocean, traveled thousands of miles to, uh, to the coast of a new continent. In the first year, they established their town site. In the second year, they established their town council. In the third year, the town council voted to build a road five miles west into the wilderness. And in the fourth year, the people tried to replace the town council for the folly of building a road five miles west into the wilderness. Who needed to go there? The vision that carried them thousands of miles across the ocean wouldn't carry them five miles further into the wilderness. Visions are wonderful. Yes, they are but they don't last forever, and they need refreshing. The Hebrews had also endured some deep water experience of a different kind. You remember the story of the Red Sea. And then they followed Moses 
into a different wilderness, not a primeval forest, but a, a rock-hard desert. And now, not so very long after that, we see them deserting the faith that brought them out of Egypt. What happened to them? Well, first of all, the journey was hard. Might not have been as easy as they, they thought it was going to be. And they had to provide for themselves out in the desert. You know, you can get accustomed to being taken care of even when the price is slavery. Exodus, the way Exodus tells us the story, even a couple of weeks after the miracle at the Red Sea, they were longing for the flesh pots of Egypt and the good food they had had back in their slave days. And the desert hadn't gotten any easier since then. Then they lost sight of Moses. He left them going up on the mountain to commune with God. It's a great thing to commune with God, but the people had lost track of him, and then, then they said, we don't know what's become of him. It was his leadership that had reminded them of their purpose to go to the promised land. It was his leadership that had given them courage to overcome the obstacles that they faced. Now, he had gone up to the mountain, and who knew if or when he would return? So they turned to Aaron the second in command, they begged him, and he gave in and placated them. There's another hint to what was going on here, perhaps. The fact that when Aaron made this substitute God for them, he made it in the, in the shape of a calf. Our evidence of the ancient Near East suggests that there were a whole lot of peoples in that time and in that place who formed their gods into the shape of calves. Maybe they wanted to be like the folks next door. So when they gave up on their vision and decided to reduce it to a God that they could see and touch, what did it do for them? Did it do for them what they wanted? <laughs> of course not. Settling for a cheap imitation instead of the genuine article seldom satisfies. Because when, when the invisible, intangible God because something, becomes something you can touch, and then the personal, active God becomes an object that cannot see or speak or act. And oddly enough, that sense of the nearness of God that they longed for so much escaped them the moment they made something that they thought would remind them of it. They wanted to grasp it more tightly, but it escaped from them like bubbles escaping uh, from in the breeze. Sadly, in losing the vision that God had given them, the vision to go to the promised land, they even became enemies of God, worshiping this calf, eating, drinking, reveling. They, they behaved in ways directly opposed to the way that God wanted. Becoming enemies of God, do you think that that can't happen so quickly? Do you think it cannot happen at all? Turn over into the New Testament. Turn over into Matthew 16th chapter in that wonderful mountaintop experience where, where Jesus uh, says to the disciples, who do people say that I am? And it's Simon who says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus gives that, that wonderful word of blessing for him. And then he tells them what's going to happen. And Simon, the, the same one who had just stepped to the head of the class, 
says, no, no, Lord, you don't understand. It can't happen that way to you. And what does Jesus say to Simon? Get thee behind me, Satan, the adversary. How quickly he went from, 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 the, from the right hand of God to, to somewhere quite different. Once you sense God's call to the promised land, once you set out on the journey, don't stop halfway and don't ever, ever, ever lose sight of the vision. What happened to Israel can happen to Christians individually and can happen to churches as well. Some years ago, <clears throat> seems like a long time now, but I, I, I did a term as a district superintendent in the fall of the year. Uh, off I'd go to all the different churches in the district, and it could be a pretty boring time at times, but, but I, I, I hoped that we could sense a spark of enthusiasm. And, and some of them were really powerful as the people would share with me their sense of the vision of what they were called to be and to do and the good things they were doing in the name of the Lord. And then there are the others who didn't really have any stories like that to tell. My wife, Jan, would go with me, and, you know, she had usually heard the sermon before, and so when we left, she'd give me a review. She was nice enough not to give it a review of my performance, but, but what I was encountering, there I was in these, these sort of lifeless churches trying to encourage them and build them up and give them a spark of enthusiasm. And Jan would say, well, you tried your best tonight, but you weren't getting anywhere with them, were you? Well, there's one that shall remain nameless, thank the Lord. It's still out there uh, holding services every Sunday. But I spent five or ten minutes one night asking them, why would someone want to visit your church? Why would someone want to become part of your church? They couldn't tell me. When you lose the vision, what happens? When you run into the wilderness and there's, there's nothing to pull you forward, what can you do? And maybe even sadder than those churches that appear lifeless to practically everybody, almost as sad, maybe even worse, are those churches that have lost the vision of really serving the Lord, lost the vision of serving God in his world, and instead just get together for things that make them feel good. One year in those charge conferences, we were invited to ask them to list all the things that they did to build up their own nurture, and then to let build up and make a list of the ones that were dedicated to serving the world. You would expect that the one list would be a lot longer, but sometimes the second list didn't even have one, an item on it. And there are churches like that. There are the friendly churches they publicize. We're the friendly church, but it turns out they're only friendly to people who are just like us. In the end of the 19th century, there was a, a bishop of one of the denominations that through mergers and uh, became part of our United Methodist Church today, Bishop Milton Wright in Ohio. And he was, uh, was, was bishop in that area and his denomination sponsored a college and he was having a conversation with the president of that college. He was 
going on at great length to the president of the college about the wonderful inventions and progress that humankind had made in the 19th century. And he predicted that, that pretty much all the great inventions and discoveries that humankind would ever have had already taken place. Well, the president of the college, besides his administrative duties, was also a professor of physics and chemistry. And he had a different view of things. He dared to disagree with the bishop. And he said, actually, Bishop, I think that uh, you've spoken well about the 19th century, but I believe that in the 20th century, humankind will do things that we cannot even imagine today. The bishop went harumph and asked him, what on earth did you have in mind? And the college president said, I believe that in the 20th century, humankind will learn to fly. The bishop was thoroughly put out with that. He said, I read in my Bible, that flight is given to the angels, mankind will never fly. That's what Bishop Milton Wright said in the 19th century. A loss of vision, a loss of expectation for what, what God had in mind for his people. But there was hope for the Hebrews in the, in the wilderness at Sinai, and there's hope for churches today. God has new places to go if only we will open our eyes to see them. We think of Moses as the lawgiver, and so he was. But don't stop. Don't stop reading this lesson at the part about the golden calf. Go on to the conversation with, with God, Moses and God. Moses arguing with God, pleading with God on behalf of the very people who had just betrayed his trust. You see, Moses was not only the great lawgiver, Moses was also the great intercessor, pleading with God not to destroy his people, but to, but to restore them into his fellowship. And so what about God? We think of God as just and demanding, and so he is. But this is a story of God's forgiveness. God, Israel continued toward the promised land. The story of Israel did not end in Exodus 32, 14. Ex, uh, Israel continued toward the promised land because God looked at a broken people and was willing to pick up the pieces and put them together again. Bishop Milton Wright couldn't see God's future in this world. But Bishop Milton Wright had two sons. Their names were Wilbur and Orville. And early in the 20th century, he le they left Dayton, Ohio, and traveled down to Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, and humankind took flight. They saw the vision that their father was unable to see. But maybe you'd like a story about a vision that gets compromised but still gets re renewed. Maybe you'd like a story closer to hand than, than, uh, than Kitty Hawk or, or Ohio. Maybe you'd like a story about Valdosta, Georgia, and a man named Bob Clyatt. This happened, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, I guess. Bob Clyatt went to his church, Park Avenue United Methodist Church in Valdosta. His pastor, Bill Dupree, preached a sermon entitled, Things I Have Left Undone. It was about the Good Samaritan. It was about the priest and the Levite. Bill said, they didn't do anything bad to the guy in the ditch. They didn't kick dirt on him. They didn't insult him. They just didn't do anything at all. And that this was the sermon. 
the things that Christians fail to do, things I have left undone, and Bob Clyatt remembered something he had left undone. It was in a file folder in his file cabinet at home. Seems that a number of years ago, in his practice of, of the law, he had traveled up to Albany, Georgia, to meet with a client who had been the victim of, of a terrible industrial accident. This man's life would never be the same, and uh, Attorney Clyatt was simply trying to help him in his workers' comp uh, court case. But while he was meeting with this man, in the door walked the man's little daughter, I think eight or ten years old. And Bob Clyatt realized not only was this man's life changed for the worse in that moment, this little girl's life was damaged. She would probably never be able to achieve the things that she could have with a healthy wage-earning father. Bob Clyatt went back and got together with some of his lawyer friends, and they, they, they talked about an organization called Kids Chance, where they could raise money and help kids with, with, in, in this kind of need. But it wasn't easy to get that going. They made some progress, but they couldn't get through the IRS initially, and, and that had become a thing that Bob Clyde had left undone there in the file folder in his file cabinet. He went and pulled it out. He started work again. Again, he had trouble getting the approval uh, for, from the IRS, but he and his friends kept going until they were able to establish it, put it on good footing, and over a few years they raised hundreds of thousands of dollars and gave dozens of scholarships to kids who really needed the help. A church doesn't have to be perfect. A church doesn't have to finish everything it starts when they plan to do it. A church, if it keeps the vision, if they keeps the vision in sight, it can keep moving toward the promised land. It was God's vision of the promised land that pulled Israel forward. And it's God's vision that he gives to us today that motivates God's people to offer their prayers, their presence, their gifts, their service, their witness. Truth be told, it's God's vision that gives the church a future at all. Thanks be to God. May we pray. Loving God, we thank you for the vision that you have given us. We pray that you would stir it up, renew it, and give us energy not only to dream but to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.